0: Uh, FYI, I don't memorize my sermons. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I write them out, and I, I capture a few highlights, but I don't memorize it. Uh, I like to think it's in my heart what the Lord get, has given me. Uh, so, what I'm giving you today is what I feel like the Lord has deposited to be over the last, really, several years, and in particularly the last couple of years. Next Tuesday, November 6th, Election Day, the midterms. Outside of our quadrennial presidential elections, it is arguably the most important date on our political calendars. In our own church, we're uh, electing or voting for two of our own that are running for office. Cindy Munson, running for state representative as the uh, incumbent. And who else is running? Hey, Carrie Bloomert. Carrie Bloomert. See, I told you I don't remember. I don't care to remember names. Carrie Bloomert is running for county commissioner. We're voting for a governor. We're voting for state questions. We're voting for all different kinds of things on Tuesday. It's a very, very important day. And I can clearly remember the, the most my, my first major election in which I voted. 1972, Richard Nixon was running as the president, the incumbent, against Senator George McGovern of South Dakota. I was a student at the University of Oklahoma, boomer, since it's already been said today, But my polling place was at Whittier grade school in Lawton, Oklahoma, the town that I was born and raised in and subsequently had registered to vote. But because I was a good citizen, because my allegiance was to the United States of America, I drove the three-hour round trip to stand in that little booth that I can still picture in my mind at Whittier grade school to check my ballot for, and I'm not going to tell you who I voted for, but I voted. My allegiance to this country has never been questioned. Every time I've been called for jury duty, which only has been one time, but the one time that I was called, I served. I served in the United States Army as an officer. When I call up my insurance company now, they still refer to me as Captain Gilbert. I've tried to get my kids to call me that, and it didn't work. (laughs) However, if you want to do that, that's fine with me. My allegiance to this country has never been in question. I love this country. My allegiance is to the United States of America. In fact, I can I can not only can I remember the first time that I voted, but one of my earliest childhood memories is at that same Whittier Grade School standing behind beside my desk every morning with my hand on my heart saying I pledge allegiance to the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands one nation under God Indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. My allegiance is to the United States of America. Yet, there is an allegiance for me that is higher than my allegiance to this country. In fact, if my allegiance to this country ever conflicts with this other allegiance, I would regretfully, sadly, have to deny my allegiance to the United States and keep my allegiance to this other thing. What is that other allegiance, you ask? Jesus Christ is my highest Allegiance. It is to Him that I owe all of my allegiance, even if it means I have to deny my country, which I, Lord willing, I'll never have to do, but if I have to, my allegiance is to Him. Jesus is my Lord. Now Christians throughout history have always had this allegiance. They have lived this allegiance. Sometimes to the point of death, particularly in the early centuries and even still to this day, as we we prayed for the the persecuted and martyred Christians around the world, because their allegiance is to Jesus and not to whatever political or world rulers that might they might be living under. Christians have always lived out this allegiance. But in the very earliest, earliest days of the church, in fact, within the first probably decade or two, after the resurrection of Jesus. Not only did the Christians live this allegiance, but they took this allegiance and they compressed it and put it into a formula. They put it into a brief, pithy little saying, much like we have done with the allegiance that we have to this country and have put it into our what we call our Pledge of Allegiance. The early Christians had their own pledge of allegiance. They put their allegiance to Jesus into a formula. That formula was the very simple, in fact, that in the Greek, it's only two words. In the English, it comes out as three, but it's very simple. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. They not only lived it, but they put it into this saying, so that they could have it and know it. Now we're, we're familiar with this. I mean, it's, it's a very common saying. In fact, if you, if you drive down um, Memorial Highway in the north part of Oklahoma City, or those of you that are fortunate enough to have a Pike Pass and can drive down the Kilpatrick. As, as you're driving down either Memorial or Kilpatrick, if you look off to the south, Between Western and Pennsylvania, there's a church called Church on the Rock, and right on the facing wall of that church, I know you've seen it if you've gone down that way, it says, Jesus is Lord. It's an extremely common saying, and rightly so, because it's found throughout, in in different iterations, throughout the pages of the New Testament. There's three in particular in the writings of Paul that, that have it the most formulaic, expression of this, and we're going to look at those three and one in particular this morning. The first one is found in Romans. Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That Jesus is Lord. There it is. Jesus is Lord. Paul uses it here in this context to explain what it what it takes to, to, quote, get saved, to know Jesus. You, you In some shape, form, you expressed this early Christian formula, Jesus is Lord. The next one is found in um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 11, 10 and 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now here, we get a little extra word in here, we get the word Christ, it's, they've added to this formula because they didn't always say it the same way, much as sometimes you hear the our Pledge of Allegiance stated, sometimes a little bit differently, depending on where you learned it. But it's the same formula, Jesus Christ is Lord. And then the last one we're going to look at and we're going to camp on this morning is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord. This was the early, early Christian Pledge of Allegiance. So, what does it mean? What does this Pledge of Allegiance mean? Well, I'm going to explain it because we're 2,000 years and couple, several cultures and languages separated from when this formula was first put together. And although we have some vague idea of what it means and, it, and it's pretty much what it meant to them, but there's, there's some, some insight into this that I'm going to share with you this morning when it, what it meant to the, to the very, very early Christians when they, when they formalized this. Uh, but let me just give just a little bit of context here because I, I, I'm an interpreter, I was trained as an interpreter, and for me to, to skip the context of any passage is just like, that's, you just don't do that. Uh, I just, I, it, I mean, it goes against me. Although, to, this saying, Jesus is Lord, means pretty much the same in, in every context. It has the same meaning. It's just employed differently in different contexts for different ways. But because the way Paul uses this and the context in which it's found in 1 Corinthians 12 has some bearing on what I would believe the Lord would want us to, to hear today. Let me just briefly share with you the, the context of this saying as Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians. Paul uses this very early Christian formula, Jesus is Lord, when he writes to the Corinthians because... There was differences of opinion in the, Christian, in the Corinthian church. There were several differences of, of opinion on different issues. In these chapters in which Paul is writing, the, 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 the main thing that they were disagreeing about was coming from these people that Paul talks about in a couple of verses up there, the, the pneumaticoi, the spiritual ones, who were saying to validate an experience of the Holy Spirit... You just had to have the experience. In particular, the, the experience that they were, they were talking about was the, the gift of tongues. And they were saying that it's this experience It validates itself. If you have the experience, no matter pretty much what else you believe around it, that's, that's okay and that's good. And that was, that was causing some disunity in this church. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not right. That's not true. Any experience must be validated by good sound theology. And the theology that Paul utilizes to, to say that this, this is uh, what, what really validates experience was this expression, Jesus is Lord. So that's the context here. In Corinthians, he, Paul is use, utilizing this phrase to bring about unity, to help bring about unity in this Corinthian church. So what does it mean? What does it mean when Paul says, and the early Christians said, and they pledged their allegiance and said, Jesus is Lord. Well, anytime you take a concept and you squeeze it down into a brief saying, into something very dense, there is lots of meaning within that. Because it's like you're taking this big idea and you're squeezing it down into something that's simple and easy to remember and to say again. And in this particular phrase, Jesus is Lord, there is at least two levels of meaning that, w- that we, can f- we can discern. The first level of meaning comes from the Jewish background in which the, the church was first formed. Most of the, the early Christians were, were Jews and as you are as most of you are probably well aware in the hebrew bible when the 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 the, the uh, proper name the com- most common name for god was yahweh or as it's often anglicized in our english language it's it's jehovah now, we don't actually know how they pronounce, the Jews pronounced it, because even to this day, the Jews do not pronounce this word. It was so holy, so sacred to them, that they never pronounced it. And so when, when they're in their Hebrew Bibles, when they, when they came across this word, they didn't put the vowels to it. They just <laughs> left the vowels off. All we have is the consonants. We have four consonants, and that's all we have. So it's hard to pronounce a word when you don't know exactly what the vowels are. I mean, it's kind of like... It's all consonants. It's actually Y-H-W-H, and in, in the English is what it, are the consonants Y-H-W-H. Well, how do you say that if you don't know what the vowels are? So we don't know exactly what, how to say this word. Our best guess is, is, was that it was Yehovah, Jehovah, or Yahweh, one or the other, depending on whether you take the Y or the J sound here with that first consonant. So, when they, when they put this word in their Bibles, they, put, they had the consonants, underneath it, for the vowels, they didn't put the vowels for this word, they put the vowels for another word. They put the vowels for the word Adonai, which literally means, my lords, my lords, but when they translate, now follow. hang with me here. This is going to get a little technical, but I'll, we'll get to the, 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 the end of it here in just a minute. When they, when they translated this word Yahweh or Adonai into the Greek Testament, which, which was the common Bible of that day around the Mediterranean, they used the word kurios, which simply meant Lord. Lord. And so in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish mind, Every time they saw the word Lord, they were thinking of Yahweh. Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, Lord. The two were the same. They saw no difference. In their thinking, Yahweh and the Lord were the same person. And so when the early, early Christians formulated this saying, and they said, Jesus is Lord? They were saying, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the creator God. Jesus is the God who is above all gods. Jesus is the ruler God. The God who is the sovereign of all the universe. Now this was a radical radical theological step for, the, for these early Christians to take, but it's one that they took when they said, Jesus is Lord. That's what they meant by that, by that saying. To the Jews, it was blasphemy to do this. But the early Christians took this step and said, Jesus is the ruler God of all the universe. Paul picks up on this idea various times we can see it in the New Testament Colossians 1.16 Paul says By, through this Jesus all things were created both things heaven and on earth because Jesus and Yahweh were one and the same so that's the first level of meaning that's found in this phrase Jesus is Lord derives from the Jewish background the second level of meaning comes from the Roman uh, background that was the Roman political background that was the dominant political background in the Mediterranean area of that day. I mean, in fact, for several centuries. In Roman culture, the emperor was called the Lord, the Curios, the Lord. So to apply this term, although it wasn't only applied to the emperor, it had other applications as well, but to apply this term Lord to Jesus was not just blasphemous to the Jews, it was sedition to the Romans. Because the early Christians were saying, no, it is not Caesar who is the Lord, it is Jesus who is the Lord. And at this particular time, the emperor, when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, was likely a, a man by the name of Claudius. And when he wrote this letter to the Corinthians, a city filled with Romans, founded in several, about a century before by Julius Caesar as a, as a Roman colony, when, when Paul wrote these words to this particular church, used this particular phrase with this particular church, every person in that city, would have, would, would, if they'd have heard the word Jesus is Lord, if they were not a believer, they would have gone, no, no, God, uh, Claudius is Lord, Claudius is Lord, not Jesus, not some put to the death, executed criminal, Claudius is Lord, or whatever Caesar was in, happened to be in control, he was Lord, not Jesus. Caesar is the ruler of this world. Caesar portrayed himself. Caesar portrayed himself as the son of God. He used all these terms that, that, that the Christians actually parodied by saying, no, it's not Caesar. It's Jesus. Jesus is the ruler of this world. Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 15, where he, I think it's verse 27, 26, somewhere in there, where he he quotes Psalm 8 and said, he said, everything has been put under subjection to his feet. Jesus, everything has been put under subjection to his feet. Jesus even said before he was resurrected, he said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. It is not, he didn't say this, but this is what he is in essence saying. It is not Caesar. It is not the government. It is not whatever political leader you happen to be under. It is Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. So when you pack all of these these two main meanings, this meaning with the Jewish background and this meaning with the Roman background, you put it all together, you have an, an incredible uh, beautiful uh, breathtaking statement that this Jesus, who was born during the reign of the first emperor Augustus, was somehow mysteriously the embodiment of Yahweh, and that when he came and he died and he rose again, he defeated all of the enemies that stood against him reclaiming his reign on this earth, which had been usurped from him by the evil that had transpired in the garden. And so this Jesus, this mysterious embodiment of the, the Israel's God, Yahweh, came and defeated all of the enemies. Certainly any, any ruler that stood against the Lord, certainly any Caesar... And the only thing that he's waiting for is to come back and to, to, to finish his to, to cultivate consummate his reign on this earth. Jesus is Lord. That's what that phrase said. All of those great meanings were just crunched down into this one little two, three-word saying: Jesus is Lord. And so when the early Christians made this proclamation. and Anachronistically, it's almost as if they were standing there with their hands on their hearts saying, I pledge allegiance to Jesus and the kingdom over which he rules. One kingdom under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. That is Jesus, his Lord. Now, what does this have to say to us today? Well, much, I believe. But two things in particular that I believe the Lord would have us to take away this morning. First, to those of you Who have pledged your allegiance to Jesus. Who have said, yes, Jesus is Lord. To those of you that have taken that step. Whether you are a Republican. Whether you are a Democrat. Whether you voted for Trump. Or whether you will vote next Tuesday for those who Trump endorses. Or whether next Tuesday you will vote against those who Trump has endorsed. Jesus is your Lord. Why do you stand together with Trump and Obama people together? Because Jesus is the Lord of you both. He is your Lord, regardless of who you voted for or are going to vote for. Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is the one who gets your ultimate allegiance. Your ultimate allegiance is not to Donald Trump. Your ultimate allegiance is not to Barack Obama. Your ultimate allegiance is not to Kevin Stitt. Your ultimate allegiance is not to Drew Edmondson. Your ultimate allegiance is not to Maxine Waters or or Paul Ryan or pick whatever political figure you want. Your ultimate allegiance is not to that person. Your ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. People. The unity of the church is at stake here. As it was when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians. This is how serious this is. And how incredible will it look if the church combines. Now, I'm not saying we agree on everything, we will not agree. (laughs) I'm not saying that. But we do agree on this. Jesus is Lord. So regardless of what your political persuasion is, whether you're on the left or the right, I don't really care. What I care about is that whether you're on the left or you're on the right, that you look your brother or sister in the eye who disagrees with you, maybe polar disagreement with you, you put your arms around them and you tell them, I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. And I agree to disagree with you. Now, I'm not saying this is going to be easy. It wasn't easy for Paul. We read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, when after Paul had written this letter to them pleading for unity in the church and using as one of his arguments that Jesus is Lord, we read that Paul, when he, he had to pay a, a, a visit to Corinth, and he describes it as a painful visit. Apparently, things did not go well. Unity is never an easy thing. The the issues are always way more complicated than the rhetoric that we hear today would have us to believe. The emotions that are attached to these issues are run way deeper than, are easy to deal with. So I am not so naive as to think that this unity is, oh, okay, Jesus is Lord. it's not an easy thing. It wasn't for Paul. It will not be for us. It is still not an excuse, though, just because it's not easy. It's not an excuse for us to not to try to be unified under the banner of Jesus is Lord. It will be difficult It will be hard. There will be discussions. There will be disagreements. That's going to happen. But if we agree that Jesus is Lord, we can make some progress. And we can be a church. Not just Crestwood Vineyard, but the church in the United States. So that's the first thing I feel like the Lord wants us to hear this morning. Unite under the banner, Jesus is Lord. Secondly, to those who have never made that commitment to Jesus, who have never pledged their allegiance to Jesus, I say to you today, now is the time. I say again, Jesus, the embodiment of Yahweh, came to this earth, he died, was, rose again, so that you might live. And all he asks of you is that you say, I pledge my allegiance to you, Jesus. You are my Lord. Who is that person, our persons today? Is there anyone here that has never pledged their allegiance to Jesus? If that is you, I want you, as an expression of your allegiance to Jesus, Jesus, I want you to stand up right now. If there's anyone here that has never pledged their allegiance to Jesus, I want you to stand up now. It's not an easy thing, but I can assure you, 46 years ago when I pledged my allegiance to Jesus, it was the best decision I had ever made. Is there anyone here today in that situation? In conclusion, and in summary, to those who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus, love your brother, your sister, with whom you disagree. Jesus is the Lord of you both. To those who have never made that commitment, and there still may be some here and they just didn't stand up, I say to you, now is the time. Come speak to me afterwards. He is truly the Lord of this universe. And to all of us, next Tuesday, go vote. Go vote next Tuesday. But at the end of the day, literally, at the end of the day, next Tuesday, when when the polls have closed and the final ballot has been counted and the results are made known, whether the Congress is now controlled by the Republicans or the Congress is now controlled by the Democrats, whether we have a Democratic governor or we have a Republican governor, whether your candidate is won or lost, I want you to remember this. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're the Lord. You're the ultimate of all of our devotion. You're above all earthly power, that our allegiance is ultimately to you and not to, p- to political systems. And Father, we know you use political systems. We thank you for that. We thank you for the good that comes from, from them. But Lord, our ultimate allegiance is to you. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure how to progress with the ministry time, so if somebody has a feel for that, please jump in. Um, uh, we always. Want-